Welcome to Rural Is Cool. This week, I chat with Kadrian Livingston. Kadrian grew up on the family ranch, working beside her parents until a farming accident took her father's life. After a difficult conversation, Kadrian and her mother decided to keep the ranch going. We chat about the importance of farm and ranch safety, rural broadband, changes she would like to see for the industry, and of course, cows. If you enjoy this conversation, please be sure to subscribe or follow so you don't miss the next episode. Well, hello, Kadrian. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excellent. Um, I wanted to chat with you today um, to kind of talk about growing up on a ranch and then talk about what you went to school for and, and how you plan to use that in the future. Uh, I know you're a big advocate for rural and um, I want to kind of explain to people what that is. So why don't we start with uh, how you grew up on, on a ranch? Sure. So obviously I grew up on the ranch my entire life. Um, started in 1998 uh, being the, the ranch girl, if you will. And really it was a kind of a cool concept with my mom and dad getting started on the ranch because they started with absolutely nothing. Um, they truly did not have anything given to them. They actually started a hog operation in order to get into the cattle operation back in 1988. And so that is why our ranch is called the 88 Ranch uh, is because of that 1988 start date. So it, it was really kind of a fascinating story growing up to hear just how special that ranch had become in my family and how that hard work, uh, grit, determination, um, work ethic came true to creating the 88 Ranch and really helping uh, create what, what the ranch is today. So again, my, my family started in, in hogs in 1988 and eventually when the hog uh, market kind of crashed and became more of a corporate world, they they sold out and did some custom hay operation uh, in order to build up their cattle herd. And so now today we have about 300 head of registered cattle that we take care of and uh, sell bulls, private treaty and, and work. And, and um, it's been a lot of fun growing up in the ranch industry. Uh, not only as a little kid and just being able to be out there on the ranch and not have to worry about anything else, but also to instill that hard work ethic um, right off from the get-go. I, I think that that's one of the most important things that a ranch can do for you is instill those work ethics, those values, those morals, and really help you be able to grow as an individual and the nice thing is, is you kind of get the benefit of self-employment right away. Uh, that's what a ranch can give to you is self-employment and be able to understand that, that there's big benefits to working your butt off and, and seeing the reward and, and the reward is yours. It's not anybody else's to take. And that I think is really cool growing up on the ranch and, and being able to do that. So I, I grew up there, obviously, for 18 years. Uh, Mom and I worked hard on the, on the ranch. And then in uh, 2016, graduated from high school and moved on to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to go pursue agricultural communications as a degree. 
And it's funny, a lot of people actually laugh at me when I tell them what my degree is in and say, oh, so you talk to cows? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not quite. Not like, quite well, that. I do that too, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, UNL was one of the only colleges to have agricultural communications as a degree. And so that has been an interesting experience uh, throughout the three and a half years that I went to college for the simple fact that I was learning a lot of things. And, and the benefit to an agricultural communications degree is actually it's a Bachelor of Science instead of a Bachelor of Arts. And um, the employer world will tell you that there's a big difference between a BS and a BA uh, pay-wise, experience-wise, et cetera. So that was a really cool experience to go in and get a BS at UNL and really come out with being able to do anything I want to do. Uh, that communications degree is so wide and it actually dove in a little bit into the environmental sciences piece of it too. And so with that degree, I could probably literally have any job in the world uh, with the few exceptions of doctor and lawyer, of course, but uh, that has been really fun to kind of experience the benefits of growing up in the ag industry and now getting to work in the ag industry now too. There's a couple of things I, I want to unpack there. You mentioned registered cattle. What, what is, what's a registered cattle, a registered cow? <laughs> yeah. So good question. A registered cow herd is essentially cows that have papers that tell you their bloodlines and where they came from. So essentially there's multiple different cattle um, associations out there, depending on the breed of cattle that you raise. So there's the Angus Association, Hereford Association. Uh, we work with the Gelvie Association and each cow herd has their own association. And within that you can register your cows to basically have papers and records on them so that when you go to sell their calves or uh, sell that particular cow to somebody else, that paper trail kind of follows them to say, you know, here's their bloodlines. This is their, um, this is how they're going to be raised. This is what their uh, EPDs are, expected progeny difference, I think is what that stands for. Uh, essentially, it's numbers on the cow that tell you how well that cow is going to perform. So those EPDs will show uh, milk performance. It'll show meat performance. It will show um, yield performance. So essentially, when that person is buying that, that cow, they will be able to tell one, if that cow is going to be a good mother, or if that cow is going to raise good milk for its calf, or if that cow is going to yield good calves for carcassing data, uh, you know, raise good calves in order to be harvested for meat. And those numbers tell you exactly what you're looking for in those cattle genetics so that you can pick the best cow for your cow herd. Huh. That is crazy. I, I've 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 learned some some crazy things about um, cattle and, and dairy farms or, or the, the the recent past, and the, it's just crazy that you can tell all of that just from um, 
a cow's genetics from their DNA. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, so you also mentioned uh, you, you sell them private treaty. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, so private treaty is essentially when you are selling cattle or bulls in our case for uh, for somebody else's herd, like to go to somebody else's herd, but without having an auction. So a lot of people will choose to sell cattle on an uh, on an auction. And the people come uh, to buy those cattle at the auction, whereas my mother and I sell our bulls that we raise private treaty, meaning that people just come on a first come first serve basis, look at the bulls that they want to buy and essentially buy them right there on the spot without having to go to an auction and compete with other bidders. And, And you only sell the bulls? Correct. Yep. And, and because the moms will make more bulls in theory. Um, yep. I was at a dairy farm recently and, and they taught me that they can uh, breed the cow in a way that it will only have a female uh, offspring. Uh, I thought that was crazy. Um, do you guys do that with your um, AI that artificially inseminate them in a way that they produce more males and females or? No. So uh, that sex semen is actually extremely expensive and is very much more beneficial to dairies for the simple fact that they want females uh, versus bull calves. But for somebody like us, it's actually beneficial if, if we have both and it doesn't really matter how much of both we have. So the bulls that we have uh, essentially the good ones that, that we feel would be able to sell well, we keep back to sell to our customers and any of the other ones will get um, steered or banded and get sold off to a sale barn. Same thing with the heifers. We keep about 50 head of what we call replacement heifers. So replacement heifers are heifers that are um, less than one year old, and we will be keeping for ourselves to replace the old cows in our cow family. And so we will pick our best um, replacement heifers and keep those. And then the rest of the heifers will also go into that pen to sell at a, at a auction at a sale barn. It's, that's so, and I, I'm fascinated. I, I don't know if you knew or not, but I, I uh, drive a school bus for the public school um, and I pick your sisters up in the morning and they have taught me so much over the last few years about uh, cows and calving. And, and it's, it's uh, interesting to hear this side of it and, and the, the adult version of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned um, that your parents had started the farm and then you talk about um, your mom and you uh, selling the bulls and taking care of things now. Your dad was involved in a farming accident, gosh, in 2008. What? Okay. Can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, we had really just gotten the cattle, um, the cattle genetics to where we wanted them exactly where we wanted them to be around that time. And, Essentially, my dad had just gotten into the farming business um, just a year prior to that in 2007. And the reason why that's an important detail in this story is because oftentimes my biggest passion in life 
is agricultural safety and how much of a lack of knowledge uh, ranchers and farmers have when it comes to the dangers of their own industry. Because believe it or not, agriculture is actually one of the most dangerous industries in the entire world. And, and the best statistic that I like to share with that is that farmers and farm workers are 800% more likely to die on the job than any other industry. So when you dive into that statistic, you truly get to think, okay, you know, how dangerous is this job that people are actually doing, right? And so my dad had just gotten into that farming industry in 2007. He had been a rancher his whole life. And, and in Nebraska, there's a very big difference between a farmer and a rancher. A rancher is typically just strictly cows, whereas a farmer is very much uh, more of a um, farming and, and cattle operation both. So they run both sides of the, of the river. So essentially, uh, my dad had just gotten into that farming industry and he really did not know the dangers that grain had at the time. And he had gotten into a grain bin, a cone shaped grain bin at a neighbor's place, a few miles down the road in 2008, April of 2008. Essentially, there were about 500 bushels of corn left. So typically it's not going to be 500 bushels is not very much, um, very much more less than a less than a truckload. And he had fallen in an air pocket and essentially fell below the grain. So the grain was on top of him and was suffocating him. Now, the trucker was there at the time but he had stepped away to move the truck forward. And when he came back, all he saw were my dad's arms sticking up out of the grain. And that's an important piece as well, because when a farmer does get in that situation, uh, it's very beneficial for the rescuers for that farmer to raise their hand up above the grain if they can, so that people can find them and rescue them. So the trucker called the rescue team. The rescue team was only about 10 minutes away. I mean, they were not far away at all, but the rescue team didn't have the proper equipment or the proper training to get him out in time. And that's a really crucial piece too, because back then in 2008, I mean, you know, we're talking a few years back, there wasn't very good programs um, benefiting rescue teams, local rescue teams in particular on how to save farmers. And there wasn't very good information on training and how we deal with those situations. And I, I will tell you, Mike, it has greatly, greatly increased the amount of training and the amount of resources that our rescue teams are able to, to get now to help farmers in those types of situations have greatly increased. In fact, the rescue team that was on site helping my dad um, have now have the proper training and the proper equipment to, to save somebody in that situation if they had to do it again. But the important piece to that is my dad would have never gotten into that grain bin had he known the risks and dangers of that particular grain. And the reason why I say that is because I was 10 years old and my two sisters were 18 months and two weeks old at the time. So, so that family tragedy 
tremendously affected my family. And I guarantee you, you know, with that two week year old, two week old at home, my dad would have never put himself in a dangerous situation on purpose. And so that piece is extremely important to me as well, is that because he had the lack of knowledge when dealing with grain, I feel an, a tremendous passion to share the knowledge that there is now on grain and how dangerous agriculture truly is. And, you know, one of the biggest uh, maybe positive aspects of this entire story is that my family was able to rise from a tragedy and really turn it into an opportunity. And I think that's important. Um, you know, I was 10 years old and I specifically remember my mom sitting across from the table from me and saying, okay, Kadrian, what are we going to do? What are, you know, what are our plans for this ranch moving forward now that we don't have, have dad there? And at that point, it was really mom and I's decision to continue moving forward with the ranch that we had built for so long and really truly had my dad's legacy behind it. And so it, it was a tough decision, but I do not regret it by any means, because by far, I can tell you that myself and my sisters were way better off being raised on the ranch and going through that hard work and, and still are continuing to go through that hard work than we would have been moving to town and getting jobs at, at the grocery store. That's um, quite a story. Uh, I'm glad to hear that, that, um, the rescue teams around now have uh, training and, and equipment for those types of rescues. Um, hopefully they never have to use them. So is, is there education out there for someone who is wanting to get into the farming industry or, or into the ranching industry? Is there, you know, do insurance companies provide a, a some safety training or I don't know, how, how do people learn not to do these things? Right. Yeah. So that's a really important piece to my job um, that I am currently doing now and really uh, a passion that I had started back in high school due to my dad's accident. So the nice thing is, is there are tons of resources out there and it's probably right now as simple as a Google search. Uh, and, and that's the nice thing about technology and uh, evolving is that we're able to get that information at our fingertips. And I, I should say that while some rescue teams do have the proper equipment and training, there's still not enough rescue teams that have the proper training and equipment. So uh, it, I, I strongly encourage anyone who is listening that, to this, um, you know, that have farmers around their area that they care about and don't want to see get hurt, that they reach out to their rescue team and see what types of equipment and training that they have. And there are resources to get them uh, that proper training and equipment for a relatively low cost, whether it's going through Nationwide actually has a great program that they do every single year in the month of April, where they give free rescue tubes to local rescue teams. And all they have to do is, is be nominated or apply for them. And, and also, you know, going to your local agricultural bank, 
um, and asking them for, for a donation of some sort so that they can buy that equipment is also very important. But for farmers, finding that information, it's really as simple as either going to your local co-op and saying, hey, can you teach me about, about farm safety? Can you teach me what the hazards are of grain? Because most of your local co-ops are all going to be trained in farm safety and in grain safety. Um, and so they would have the knowledge and uh, you know, Google has the knowledge too. There's lots of videos out there, even as simple as going to YouTube and watching grain rescues is really important to understand the scope of it. So the, the things that I can tell you just right off the top of my head that most people don't know is that once grain gets up past your knees, you will not be able to get out by yourself. And once grain is up to your chest, no one will be able to get you out. Not even the strongest man in the world is going to be able to get you out of that situation once grain is past your chest. So, and, and largely that is due to gravity and the gravity gravitational force that grain has on you, because let's say a 120 pound person goes into the grain bin uh, and gets grain up past his chest, that's going to be about 2000 pounds pulling down on him um, in a sense of gravitational force. So many people don't know just how serious it is to get into grain and all of a sudden not be able to get out. And I think that that part is really important. So I encourage anyone who wants to learn more about this subject just do a simple Google search of, of grain safety, farm safety, watch YouTube videos. There's lots of PDFs out there that will tell you uh, the dangers of a grain bin and how to actually enter a grain bin safely. Um, you know, that, that's, as you talk with that, I, I think back to um, all the safety lessons were taught in school and, and you know how stop, drop and roll is just like beat into your head. Um, I, I would, I wonder why in public schools, we're not taught things like don't step into a green bin. Um, you know, that, that seems like something that in an agricultural community, such as ours, that would be very important to start getting into people's heads when they're, when they're kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point that I've been trying to to really fight all my life is that culture change because so often agricultural people have the mindset of get the job done no matter what. And there's never enough time in the day. So just get her done. And in the, in the work capacity that I do now, I, I deal with that mindset every single day. I'm going out to, uh, I, I'm a safety consultant for an ins insurance brokerage. And so I'm going out to feedlots and uh, dairies and co-ops every single day. And everybody says, Hadrian, there's just never enough time in the day for safety. And that is when I have to stop the conversation and tell them my personal story and say, there is enough time in the day for safety because at the end of the day, we're all here for the same goal. And that is to get your employees home your, your father home, your husband home, 
your wife home, whoever it is that's working in that industry and get them home safe to the family. And so it's a really big um, culture change to have agricultural people understand that even taking two extra seconds for the day to think about safety, to, uh, to do that job safely might just save your life one day. And so often we also have the mindset of, I've done this a million times. It's never going to happen to me. And I can tell you from experience that someday your luck will run out. Someday it will happen to you. And I think that's why it's so important for me to share my story and for others to share their own personal stories of, of what they've experienced and, and say, listen, you know, we had this mindset at one time, but we don't have it anymore because eventually it did happen to us and we don't want it to happen to you too. And I think that that's a really important piece of this whole thing is being able to change that culture somehow, whether it's through personal stories, uh, but more often than not, the sad result is the culture does not change until it actually happens to them. That is so true with, with so many aspects of, of life that it's never going to happen to you until it happens. So, so I, I too agree that it, it's um, super important to get these stories out there, get, get people to understand it, not only to understand that a women ran ranch can be very successful, but also how that, that came to be and, and why safety is important, why it's an important to, like you said, take the extra two seconds to make sure that, that nobody else goes through what, what you've gone through. You said that you're a safety consultant for an insurance company. Where, where does that lead you? What's your next step in your career? Good question. I can't tell you right off the bat what, what the future looks like. Um, but I hope that, that someday I'll be able to, um, you know, share my story, maybe even at a national level, uh, whether that's serving in some public service capacity to help farmers um, and ranchers understand the dangers, uh, whether that's, that's, you know, serving as a senator and, and, and acting laws, whatever it is, I, I really want um, my career to involve, to involve my personal story and to involve the biggest passion that I have in life. And that is to help the agricultural industry withstand the test of time and, and withstand its limits. Um, you know, I, I told you that statistic of farmers and farm workers being 800% more likely to die on the job we're not going to have very many farmers and farm workers left if that statistic continues. And so to me, it's really important that whatever I am doing in life, um, whether it's continuing with my, with my current capacity or hopefully someday growing in, in more of a, a safety capacity, I, I just want it to include um, my passion and, and, I want it to include my background because I feel like, you know, that happened to me for a reason um, that, that, that personal story 
I have such a connection with and and my dad, he was my best friend. And I know today uh, sitting here that he would want me to share that story with as many people as I can so that nobody else has to go through that. And I know that he would want his death to have some kind of purpose behind it. And so to me, it's really important that wherever I go, that, that I'm able to do that in that capacity. What, what types of laws or policy could be made to help ensure not only safety, but the longevity of, of the family farm or the family ranch? I, I recently read an article about the amount of land that um, Bill Gates owns within the United States. It, it then gets gets leased out to people who might not be able to afford to buy land, but they, they want to, to farm. Um, so it's not all bad news, right? But that's scary to think about um, when you live in a community like ours. So, so what kind of policies and, and laws, you know, and, and you don't have to get super granular, but kind of the, the big picture, what things need to, to change in order to ensure we stay the same? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a pretty packed question. But the few things that come to my mind is, first of all, uh, the tax plans of what it looks like to pass on the family farm, because, um, you know, there's been quite a few changes throughout the last few years um, of what those tax plans look like and how much uh, capital gains tax, uh, inheritance tax, death tax people have to pay in the agricultural industry in order to hold on to the legacy that their family has built for so long. So I I think that that is something that is going to have to change long-term in order to to stay in the business, because frankly, agriculture is not the most money-making business by any means. Um, Regarding safety-wise, I think one of the most important things that I work with most within my industry is the OSHA regulations. And I say that with a bit of hesitancy, because as soon as you (laughs) mention OSHA, a lot of people shut down very quickly. But I want people to understand that OSHA does not understand the agricultural industry at all. Um, The ag standards for OSHA were actually created back in I think like the 1980s, and they have not been updated since. And one of the things that I feel is important in the role that I deal with every single day is agriculture is changing. And agriculture has changed significantly from 1980 to 2020, 21, right? And so it's extremely important that the, the industry standards keep up with those changes and we figure out how to let the people get their job done, but get it done safely. And one of the cool things that I see um, evolving is how we clean out grain bins. In fact, I just read an article a couple of days ago about these two young um, college students at UNL who created a, basically a grain bin robot to clean out the grain bin for these farmers. Now, you know, whether that's going to be sustainable or not, I, my hope is that it will be sustainable, uh, cheap enough 
uh, work, you know, et cetera, for, for these farmers to be able to utilize something like that in the near future so that the, the need is no longer having to do the dangerous job. We have technology do it for us. It's great that there uh, is a place like UNL in in a bunch of community colleges in in smaller communities that feed into it, right? That breed this kind of ingenuity and and these ideas. And it it all stems from people with tragedies in their past, such as yourself, and and taking that and and turning it into a a passion and and something to help other people. I think that... uh, there's a lot to be said about the the ideas that that the younger generation have, like a robot cleaning out the grain bin, and and if we could put some money behind that and and figure out, like you said, how to make that affordable, how to make it so every farm every farm with a grain bin can have one. Um, yeah, I, I think that that would be extremely important, and I think that that's the exciting part about technology developing is that you know, we're able to come up with these cool ideas. And I see agriculture progressing every single day. And so that's really exciting for me and for my generation, I think, to grow up in and figure out what we can do differently that our fathers and grandpas didn't. I think back to, so we live um, in the middle of a cornfield. We have corn on three sides of us. And uh, every time I see them out there with these giant, like 16, 30 row plants or, you know, whatever, I think back to uh, my mom telling me the story of when my grandpa got an eight row planter by today's standards, it would be a complete joke, um, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I think about where technology has gone and, and um, how it's helping the farms do what they need to do. One, one of the things that um, I recently attended a USDA talk on farm technologies and, and they had talked about being able to take a cow in a certain way that enough blood flows by a sensor that you could look across your, your, your herd. And if one has a little red light on it, you know that you need to go check on that one. But if, but if all the lights are green, then, then, you know, the herd's good. Yep. Um, the crazy part that to me is all of this takes internet and we are so slow to roll the internet out to out to farms because they're, they're remote. They're not in a uh, place where that company's going to make a bunch of money by, by digging fiber out to their house. But, but we need that to uh, sustain these technologies. Yeah. Rural broadband has always been, a topic at the top of our senator um, senator's hands, and the interesting thing is, you know, I've been to D.C. many times um, throughout the last few years, high school and and college, and have actually had face to face conversations with uh, Senator Deb Fisher, Senator Sass, um, you know Adrian Smith, Congressman Adrian Smith, etc. And you know, every single time I have met with them they have all said that rural broadband is their number one issue and we're not seeing it being resolved and not to the fault of them, but rather to the fault of, of you know, our telecommunications companies and, and why they are so slow rolling out and why we're not being offered um, uh, that, that, that rural broadband faster. 
um, is, is really interesting. And, and I think that honestly, uh, you know, selfishly, maybe one of the benefits, if you will, of, of COVID was that those issues are maybe going to get resolved a little bit faster now because remote working has become such a central part of what we do. And in fact, I, I read a statistic, I believe it's by 2025, 75% of the workforce is going to be working from home. So when you think about that, the capacity that our broadband is going to have to have is going to have to increase significantly. And my, my guess is that a lot more people will be moving out of the cities and to the country rural areas um, for the simple fact that they can work from home now. And I, I think, or at least it's my hope that maybe, um, you know, that rural broadband issue will be getting resolved within the next few years, just due to how coronavirus has changed the way people live now. Yeah, I, I think that you're 100% correct that, that it, it's definitely pushed it, pushed broadband to the forefront. Um, you know, not, not even just rural broadband, but, but internet access in general. Because so, even, even in a city like Omaha or Lincoln or, or um, gosh, I lived in Houston, uh, there are pockets that don't have access to broadband. Uh, the company just doesn't think it's profitable enough to dig in, into that. My experience here in Nebraska, while we had access to what the FCC determines as broadband, um, it was not significant. It, it was not good enough connection and, and speeds for my husband who works from home. Luckily, um, I called the right person on the right day and, and got them to dig three miles three miles from the end of their fiber line. So we have fiber to our house now. But one of my passions is, is to get it to every house. You know, the, the, the person a couple miles down the road from me doesn't have access to the same quality of internet that I do. And, and I think that's hilarious um, and not in a good way. Um, in 2021, that, that there are still people who don't have that access. I, I was talking to uh, one of the teachers at, at one of the public schools um, the other day, and I asked who their provider was, and they are two miles out of the, the nearest community. And she's like, oh, we use our cell phones. I'm like, how do you watch Netflix? She goes, on our cell phones. You know, it, it's just crazy to think that we can't find the funding because I truly think it's going to have to, it's going to take federal and state funds to dig down these dirt roads. It's, it's never going to be profitable for a communications company to do it. The three miles that it took to get to our house, there was 10 homes, including ours in between them. And everybody had to sign a five-year contract. And the company told me that it will be probably seven years in before they're able to, to start making a profit off of what they've done. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so with that in mind to dig three miles down a road where you may be the only house at the end of that road, a telecommunications company is not going to do that on their own. Their hands going to have to be forced or they're going to have to be given the money to do that. But yeah, I, I certainly think that it is something that's on our senators' minds. Um, I have invited, when I had the really bad internet, I invited um, our state, our state representative, our federal representatives out to my farm and asked them if they would like to try to pull Facebook up at my house. 
they all politely declined. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, so I, I think it just takes people to keep saying things, keep beating the drum, right? Like the safety things that that we mentioned in the beginning, you know, it it's, it just takes some people with with that experience to speak up um, and speak loud enough for the people who um, don't have the capacity to speak for themselves, don't have the knowledge to, or, or just don't have the time. Yeah. Um, and just a quick plug for Nebraska Farm Bureau, you know, as we're talking about these issues and what's important for agriculture and rural people, Nebraska Farm Bureau is a fantastic organization to get involved in um, for those, for anyone who is looking to um, help farmers, ranchers, um, agriculture, rural people in general. Uh, and they have some fantastic programs to go through um, to help you, you know, be able to talk about those forefront issues that we're facing in agriculture every day and how we can be part of that change and how we can, um, you know, change the way that that our government, um, you know, dictates our rural areas. And, and so it, it, that I just wanted to mention that as a gateway to if anybody is as passionate as, um, you know, we are on some of these issues, Nebraska Farm Bureau uh, or Farm Bureau uh, in general is a great organization to get involved in and to check out um, and see how you can help. And and I think it's important for people to know that that it doesn't have to be a full-time job. Uh, it can be as little or as much as you want, right? Um, Absolutely. But the places like that, um, I've been uh, involved with the Center for Rural Affairs um, on a few different issues. And a lot of the times they even like write your script for you to call your senator. You, you can tailor it however you want, but they'll send you an email. And I'm sure Farm Bureau could, does the same type of thing, right? Call your senator and talk about this. One of the things I was asked once, uh, somebody was complaining about uh, their internet and I was like, well, have you called your senator? They're like, well, what would I say? I'm like, that you have shitty internet? I'm like, it's that easy. <laughs> yep, it is. And, and you know, we, we think that, that it's so terrible. It, it is terrifying the first time you do it, right? My other suggestion to people is always call after 5 p.m. You'll get their answering machine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, your call still counts after five. And if you've had a couple <laughs> drinks, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> But um, so I, I want to um, thank you for um, sharing your story and, and your experience and your passions. I'm uh, sorry that you had to go through what you've gone through to get where you're at, but I'm, I'm glad you're where you're at. Um, I think I, I think that your women ran ranch is pretty amazing. You, your two sisters, and, and of course your mom. Um, it, it's a, a a huge operation. <laughs> the work that you're doing to expose the the risks um, and and some of the the trainings that go along with mitigating that risk as, as a farmer rancher, uh, I, I think that's all super important. So thank you so much for for um, jumping on for just a little bit, and can't wait to watch you grow and and hopefully uh, a vote for you for senator one day. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. (laughs) 
No, thank you so much um, for for having me on here and letting me talk about, you know, the few things that uh, make me get out of bed each day. I, I really, truly enjoy what I do. Um, I love the people in the agricultural industry and my heart goes out to to each and every one of them um, who have have gone through what I've gone through because um, unfortunately it's way more common than what you think. So um, I, I appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of World is Cool. There are many more great conversations to come. Hitting the subscribe or follow button will help make sure you don't miss any. If there's someone you think I should talk to, send me an email at worldiscoolpod at gmail.com. I truly enjoy meeting rural people and helping tell their stories. This episode was produced by Brian Ferris. The artwork is by Casey Schott. Do me a favor and be sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This helps more people like you find us. Until next time, remember, rural is cool.